Romans chapter 8. I do hope you'll join me in that great chapter. It is uh, one, of the, it's one of the most important in all of Scripture. It's one of the ones that I think kind of encapsulates what it means to be a Christian more than almost any other chapter. It's beautiful in so many respects. Over the next month or so, I will probably be roped into watching one or more Hallmark Christmas movies. Now, when you start a Hallmark Christmas movie, you guys know what I'm talking about? You know how it's going to end. You know some of the inevitable things that are going to happen in the movie. You know there's going to be a snowball fight at some point, always. There is going to be a moment of tension that's going to last for five minutes or so. It's going to get resolved. I don't want to spoil all of them for you guys. They're going to get together, and then it's going to end, right? And that's, that is the way that it's going to go. It's inevitable that that is the way that it's going to go. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's some of the draw of a Hallmark Christmas movie is you know it's going to end well. You know it's going to work out. It's going to make you feel good. It's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to be, be great at the end, you know? That's a little bit of a trite illustration, perhaps, for something much more important. If I can take a little step down from a lighthearted moment to this acknowledgement. We live in a world that isn't just five minutes of conflict, five minutes of tension. We live in a world that is characterized by perpetual uncertainty. Uh, we live in a world that is broken, a world that's characterized by conflict in so many ways. Uh, a, a world that is, man, it's, it's messed up on every level. We look at it certainly from, uh, from kind of like a worldly perspective. We think about the world as it is. It's not what it once was, and it's not what it's going to be, a broken world. Our bodies are, we'll talk more about this in a minute, but our, our bodies themselves are groaning for something more, you know. But we know how the story is going to end. We know as followers of Christ, that though it may seem like this tension and this, this brokenness keeps on going, we know because we've read the last chapter. We know. We know how this is going to end. This morning we're going to talk about redemption. We're going to do it from Romans 8, and, and we're going to think about what God is doing in the world. We're going to think about what, what it means to redeem. I mentioned earlier, we are reading through our one-word devotional book, and the theme for the upcoming week, week is redemption. The word redeem means to buy back, to, to pay the purchase price for something. And I want us to think this morning for the next few minutes about what that means for, for Christians. You, you may not be a Christian. You may be tuning in this morning, not a Christian. And that's fine. We are so glad that you're here. But I hope that you'll listen, and maybe you will sense something within you that longs for something more than what this world offers. And I think C.S. Lewis was the one who put it, I think, most beautifully when he suggested in different words, but the theme was this. When there is a hunger within you that is not satisfied by this world, it must mean that you weren't made for this world. And I think he's right on that. That there's something within us 
that will not be satisfied with this world as it is. Let's think about redemption this morning. Here's the way we normally think about it, and this is a good way to consider redemption. We think about it as, as implying that we're set free from sin and its consequences. Let's talk about that for a couple minutes. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it this morning, even though this is extremely important, but we've talked about this recently, and we talk about it a lot, as we should. But what does it mean to be redeemed? All right, let's think about it for a minute. You, you know in Genesis chapter 3, you know the story, Adam and Eve told they were not to eat of a specific fruit. They ate of it anyway. God had said, in the day that you eat of it, you'll die. Eve ate it, Adam ate it, and, and then God gathered them there, and he had this conversation with them. He spoke to Adam, he spoke to Eve, he spoke to the serpent. And in that, in that conversation, God is pronouncing judgment. He's saying, this, these are the consequences. This is what's going to happen. And, and we'll kind of circle back to that again and again this morning to think about it. But, but one of the things after that conversation, after God said to Adam, to said to Eve, said to the serpent, after that happened, at the end of Genesis 3, God banished them from the garden. Remember that? Set up the flaming swords, lest they come back. So you got this separation, this banishment at the end of Genesis 3. They had been, well, it's just kind of like a visual, a visual idea of what was happening. And that is Adam and Eve, and by extension, you and me, we are separated from God. We are banished. We are isolated, estranged from God. That's Genesis 3. One of the consequences, one of the primary negative consequences of the fall was that we are separated from God. And so, from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 22, you know what the Bible story is doing. You know what it's teaching, right? And that is, God wants us back with Him. He wants us in His presence. He wants to have a relationship with us. We've made a mess of things, but God is doing what God is going to do, what He can do to bring us back to Him. And so that is the biblical story. Now, a lot of times it is, it is uh, described in redemptive bondage slavery language. Let me give you a historical example. All right, very important Old Testament example. Kind of, uh, it, it, it's important to understand because it's all over the place. The book of Exodus, we open the pages there. We have read in Genesis about God's creating this family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They're called the Israelites or the Hebrews, this nation of people, this ethnic group, not only an ethnic group, but one that's in covenant, one that's in relationship with God. Now that nation has been put in bondage in, in uh, Egypt. Remember that, right? They have been put in bondage. They are slaves in Egypt. And you remember what they're doing? This, you see, you see language here. When we were reading Romans 8 a minute ago, did you notice the word groaning repeated a couple of times? The creation is groaning. We ourselves are groaning. If you read in Romans 8, 26, the next verse, it says the Holy Spirit himself is, is groaning on our behalf. So there's groaning all over the place in Romans 8. Well, in, in Exodus, Israel is in Egypt. And you know what they're doing in Egypt? Because of the slavery, they are groaning. They are crying out for what? freedom for redemption. We don't want to be here. We don't want to be slaves. And so God responds to that by raising up Moses. God sends plagues. God delivers them through the leadership of Moses out of the land of Egypt. They come to the Red Sea. God parts the waters. They are baptized. That's the way Paul describes it later. They are baptized in the Red Sea unto Moses. They cross over the Red Sea and they are Delivered. They are free people. 
Egypt, bondage is behind them. Freedom, Canaan is before them. They are made free. Now that is an historical story. It's true. But it also is a story that serves, this is important, serves as a backdrop for the entire biblical story. Because you see, what happens is that story was told over and over again by Jewish people. To this day, every spring, when Jewish people observe Passover, they will tell the story. Again, it's very important to Jewish people even to this day. Now, it's important to Christians as well. But because it represents for us something even beyond a physical deliverance. Jesus himself was arrested the week of Passover on that Thursday night. That meal that he ate with the apostles was a Passover meal that celebrated deliverance from Egypt. And he said, take this bread, take this cup, this unleavened bread that reminded them of what had happened in Egypt, this cup, this wine that they drank. He said, I'm giving this new significance. It represents now my blood, which I'm about to shed for you. And so he took a Passover meal and he said this represents something more than physical deliverance. It signifies spiritual deliverance. And so all I'm saying is this. When we're talking about redemption, it's, it's against that backdrop, this, this biblical story of God's redeeming them from slavery. God brings us out of slavery, spiritual slavery. He gives us freedom. And that bread and that that wine which we're going to take in just a few minutes, that signifies that redemption paid the purchase price. He paid the deliverance price. And we have been baptized out of Egypt toward the land of freedom. That's what all that, that language is. just all over the place. And so when we read here in Romans 8 about groaning, we're reminded of the groaning of Israel. When we read about Deliverance. We were reminded of the deliverance of Israel, but we are especially reminded of the fact that the new Moses is Jesus. The new freedom is spiritual. And we are granted this freedom through Jesus Christ. So we're being set free from sin and its consequences. Now, second idea, and we'll kind of get to Romans 8 here more specifically is about the creation. Let's talk about the creation for a minute. You got your Bible there, uh, maybe a traditional Bible, got one on your phone or tablet or whatever. Just look at this text. I want you to see a couple words that Paul uses here. Let's start reading in, again in verse 18. Uh, when Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to, to be revealed in us. For, here it is, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation, creation, creation. What's Paul talking about? Some people would suggest, I think they're wrong in this, but some people would suggest that the creation is talking about humanity. Men and women separated from God need to be reconciled to God. Now, I would, we'd all agree that that's certainly a biblical theme, but the problem with it is this word creation normally isn't used like that. Normally, this word creation is used, and I think it's used this way here, to refer to the non-human creation. And so here, Paul is personifying creation, creation being... The, the, the trees, the, the rocks, the clouds, the 
earth, uh, this world we live in, this, this uh, non-human creation that God made, the universe itself. He's personifying that creation. This is powerful. I want you to stay with me for a minute. It's groaning. It's crying out. It's, it's uh, been subjected to futility. So, see, so what happened back in Genesis 3 with me for a minute? You remember one of the things. Well, you remember what God said to Eve, right? Um, as a result of what's happened, childbirth is going to be really bad. We'll come back to that in a minute. But he also says something to Adam. And, and, and the word that he says to Adam is about the earth itself. He said that thorns and, the earth's going to produce thorns and thistles. You're going to have sweat of your brow. In, in other words, there are changes that have taken place, that are taking place as a result of our sin, Adam and Eve's sin. There are changes taking place in the earth itself. This planet has changed. The universe has changed. The thorns and thistles represents more than thorns and thistles, but represents that the fact that this earth is no longer always going to cooperate with us. So, we live in a world where viruses sometimes get out of hand. We live in a world where hurricanes, this has been one of the most active hurricane seasons in a while, right? I mean, we're halfway through the Greek alphabet. Uh, murder hornets. Uh, remember those? That's amazing that only in 2020 could murder hornets like be a footnote <laughs> to, to what's going on this year, you know? Um, we, we live in a world that is messed up, that this planet is not functioning as it was intended to function. And, and so I, I think, and I hope, I hope maybe, maybe you'll think about it in the future when you when it gets to be spring and tornadoes once again, or, or January, sometimes in December, but when, when tornadoes come to the southeast again and, and, and we get the tornado warning, that I hope you'll be reminded just a little bit that that is another piece of evidence that the earth is crying out. When a hurricane, another hurricane blows up in the Gulf, that you'll maybe see that on the Weather Channel and you'll... you'll hear the wind and you'll, you'll recognize what that wind is saying. That wind is saying, we are crying out for redemption. When once again you see the numbers of people who have, who are, who have died as a result of viruses, that you'll be reminded, the earth is groaning, it's crying out. When there's a tsunami that devastates an island or a coastal region, that you'll remember what Paul says here, the creation was subjected, subjected to futility. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, the earth itself has been put in bondage. It has been enslaved. That's what Paul's saying here. But we've read the last chapter. We know how the movie ends. We know that the earth, having been subjected to futility, will not always be that way. And so Paul writes, it is grown, it's subjected to futility. The creation itself, verse 21, will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I love that. It's just a reminder when, when we see all this stuff that's broken and we think, man, what in the world is going on? It's, it reminds us, man, this is not the way it's supposed to be, and it's not the way it's going to be. We know. Now, if you, 
If your worldview is not a Christian worldview, if your worldview is a secular one, and that is that it is informed merely by uh, natural, a natural interpretation of events, then I'd suggest to you that your, your worldview doesn't provide you with a lot of hope regarding the future. And maybe this year is a good example. Maybe it's a good reminder of us of this. As, as, as much as we have advanced medically and scientifically, and yet we, we, sometimes, we sometimes stand helpless in the face of certain events. We made progress with democracy, we think, perhaps, and then we're faced with situations where there's division and there's anger. And we, we think we've made progress in race relations, and then we are reminded once again that we've got a long way to go. And we, and we remember earthly systems can't fix what's broken. Medicine can't fix it. Democracy, capitalism, government can't fix what's broken. Money and education can't fix what's broken. But God is in the process and will one day fix what's broken. That's the hope that we have. As Christians, we read world events through that lens. We've read the last chapter. We know how the movie ends. And it ends with reconciliation. It ends with restoration. And it ends with people dwelling in the presence of God eternally. In a world that doesn't have tsunamis and viruses and hurricanes and all the stuff that's just this earth crying out for redemption. It ought to remind us of that, you know? And so this, this creation is going to be set free from, from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I like to think about that. <laughs> I know you do too. Here's the last one. Our bodies. So God said to Eve... And Eve is probably not many of our ladies who've given birth to children. She's not their hero because of what he says to her. Childbirth is going to be really something. Something's happening. I, we wonder what what you know what changed. I, I don't know exactly what changed, but what he says to her is, as a result of the fall, childbirth is going to be difficult. And I think certainly we believe that God said that, and we believe that that is true. But we also see something bigger in it than merely, merely childbirth, but it representing the fact that our bodies have been brought into bondage. And, and so that, that what, he, what he says there in Genesis 3 to her represents something bigger, and that is that our, our bodies, our physical bodies now, have been enslaved to a brokenness in the world. And so we live lives that are characterized by chronic pain, autoimmune diseases, plaque clogging up arteries, heart disease, cancer, bones getting more brittle as we age, and becoming less flexible. And, you know, I mean, we could, you could name thing after thing after thing after thing. 
And, 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 and these things remind us, when you, when you wake up tomorrow morning and you hear your bones creaking as you get out of bed, your body is groaning, maybe literally, certainly symbolically, it's groaning for redemption. It's groaning for something. It's, it's groaning, and that's a, that's a reminder that we were made for something more than this world as we know it. You know? Now, I love something that he says here. In verse 23, I learned um, something about this text this, this week that I want to share with you now. Now, verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, of our bodies, our physical bodies. So he says that we, not only the creation, not only the world itself is groaning, but we also are groaning. We groan inwardly. Now, there's this little phrase there. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. One of the basic beliefs of Christianity is that when we become Christians, the Spirit of God lives within us. We believe that. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. He lives inside of Christians. We believe you know, a very fundamental belief. So, what does Paul mean here when he says, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly. Well, one way, to, one way to read that is we groan inwardly even though we have the Spirit of God. And so maybe Paul could be saying, here's one way of reading it at least, that we groan inwardly even though we've got the Spirit, we still groan. I don't think that's what Paul means here. Douglas Moo in his commentary on the book of Romans suggests, and I think he's right on this, that the language actually suggests a different kind of reading, the way Paul words this. And what, if he's right, what Paul is saying here is that we ourselves, because we have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, not in spite of, not even though we have the, fruit, the uh, first fruits of the Spirit, but we groan inwardly because we have the first fruits of the Spirit. And if that's right, what Paul is saying is that because we have the indwelling of the Spirit, we are given insight into the way things ought to be but aren't. And that actually increases our groaning a bit because we see what they were, we see what they're going to be, but we realize they're not that. Here's another thing. It also, once we have the first fruits of the Spirit, once we have the Holy Spirit living in it, within us, we know what we ought to be. We know what God created us for. We have this vision of how I ought to live, of how we ought to live. I think, I know how I ought to live. And then I see. I see the distance at times between what I ought to be and what I am. And you probably sense that in, in your own life as well. You've got the first fruit of the Spirit. You've got the Spirit of God living in, in, within you, and so you know what you ought to be. You know what God created you for, and you're not there. And so you groan inwardly, longing for the day when God will finally release you from this bondage and free you to live perfectly the life you were created to live. So because we have the Spirit, we groan. Not in spite of, but because of. Actually, living with the Spirit creates this dissonance in us for a time as we anticipate what will one day be. Our bodies will be set free from groaning. We've read the last chapter, you know. 
We read what, Paul, what uh, John saw and wrote in Revelation 20, 21, 22. We read about a new heavens and a new earth where there is no pain and there is no sickness and there is no death. We read about that place where there is no cancer, where there are no autoimmune diseases, there is no chronic pain, there is no dementia, Alzheimer's. Our bodies will be set free from the groaning. You know, I, when, when Paul is saying this, I, I think maybe depending on where we are in life and what we've experienced, we probably relate to this text in different ways. Some of you can relate to this quite well. You've lost loved ones. Maybe you struggle with some chronic issue even now, some health issue. But we live in this broken world, messed up. Our bodies feel it every day. And I hope that we will hear the groaning as what it really is. It is an anticipation of a better world. And so Paul says, In this hope we were saved, verse 24. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so, how do we live now in the in-between? In between the Genesis 3 moment and the Revelation 21 moment. How, how do we live in between? How, how, how do we live in this moment of, of being redeemed? We are already redeemed, but not yet redeemed. That tension in the biblical story. We have already been declared God's sons and daughters, but we don't yet fully live as we will one day live in that. We've been forgiven, but we still deal with the consequences of sin. And so we feel freedom, but we don't feel it as we want to. You know what I mean? I think Paul is dealing with the tension here. But what he is saying is we can confidently approach the future because we know how the story ends. What happens in the end is, you know, you know what happens in the end, right? The marriage happens. They get together in the end. We have been reconciled to God, but on that day, it's pictured as this beautiful wedding feast. The end of the story, the end of the movie is that the marriage happens and they live happily ever after. This is true. This is what Revelation 21 and 22 teach us. The happily ever after moment is ours. And we look forward to that with confidence because of what God has done for us in Christ. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you're joining us online, you're not a Christian, what we want you to do, we would love for you to do, is just consider the possibility that that groaning that you feel, that, that something isn't right, you know, you feel it. I think we all admit that we feel it. That, that you'd entertain the possibility that the reason you feel that dissonance is that you have, you were created for something more than this. And maybe, maybe, God right now is calling you to once again be in relationship with Him as characterized by peace and harmony and not estrangement. We invite you to come to Christ today.
to accept Him as your Lord and Savior, submit your life to Him, put Him on in baptism for the forgiveness of your sins, we invite you to do that today. If you've got questions about it, let, let us know. Let one of us know. We'd love to talk to you about it. Maybe you need to come back to Him because your life has gotten off track. You know, you've, I don't know, life has gotten in the way and you've stopped focusing on what really matters. Why don't you come back to Him today? Come back home to Him today. Let's stand and sing. If you need to respond, I hope you'll come now.